A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, faithful listeners. This is episode 15. Today, we're going to talk about a Christology of divine pathos. With me, as usual, is Ben, and he's going to help us out by reviewing what we talked about in the previous episode. Let's get to it. Okay, Ben. Okay, so last time we talked about Abraham Heschel, who's a uh, 20th century Jewish theologian who wrote um, a very important book called The Prophets. And we spent time last time trying to appreciate what the theology of this book is. Um, essentially, it's it's the theology that uh, Heschel identifies in the prophets of the Hebrew uh, scriptures. Because the Hebrew scriptures involve lots of different things. Um, you've got the Pentateuch, you've got Psalms, you've got wisdom literature like Proverbs and, um, and even maybe Job and uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, but then you have the prophets like Isaiah and Amos. And they, they, they're a real phenomenal portion of scripture that really deserve their own, uh, their own attention. And that's what this book by Heschel was all about. Anyway, so the idea of the theology of the divine pathos is that Heschel's saying is that the prophets have a different perspective of God than has become popular in the time in between. And in particular, he's, we're kind of contrasting a theology of the divine pathos with what we'll call a classical theology. A classical theology is heavily influenced by um, what we might call Greek philosophy, or it's a sort of a philosophical theology where God is conceived of as, as having like a series of attributes that, that it may be safe to say are largely achieved by taking something that we appreciate and then just pushing it to the ex extreme. So for instance, we appreciate that God has power. And so in the classical theology, God becomes omnipotent, sort of all powerful. Um, we appreciate that God has knowledge. And so God becomes omniscient, knowing all things in the classical theology. We appreciate that, that God is reliable, for ha perhaps. And in the classical theology, that gets pushed to the extreme of God is impassable, that God cannot be moved, cannot be changed, um, is not even vulnerable to anything. So this is where Heschel provides a corrective. He says that if you go back to the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, you'll find that the God that they describe is very much not an impassable God, but is actually a God filled with pathos, or which is a prox, which is close to the concept of emotion, but really I think a better way to describe it is full, with, full of care and concern and even vulnerability towards the state of affairs between people. So Heschel's God, the God of the prophets, is deeply moved by how one person treats another person, uh, how the vulnerable are treated by those uh, with power over them, is deeply moved by justice or injustice upon the earth. And the, and the connection to prophets is that a prophet is not just a fortune teller. A prophet is somebody who actually shares 
in the divine pathos, who has sympathy with the divine pathos and who feels the vulnerability and the love and the anger of God towards justice and injustice upon the earth, and then gives voice to that. And one of the big phrases that you brought up last week is that um, through the prophets, the invisible God becomes audible. The prophets are people who, who speak what God feels uh, and give us a chance to, to know that. Okay. So that's my, that's my summary of the prophets um, and Heschel's theology of the divine pathos. Excellent summary, I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. So today we're going to continue more or less on the same theme, but now we're gonna we're going to see how we can build and maybe use this matrix from the prophets to interpret uh, the life of Jesus, in particular, uh, his crucifixion and his resurrection, his passion. So we're going to talk about Christology, which is to say, it's that. It's the core of Christian theology, right? The, the core of Christian theology is who is Jesus? Why is he important? And why are we named after him? I mean, what happened? Who is he? That's Christology. All Christian theologians have a Christology. And uh, in their systematic theology, if they have one, that's definitely going to be the center of the whole work, right? It's going to be the center of gravity. Who is this Christ? And why is he important? And what do we have to do with him? And why is he important for God? So that's what a Christology is. Again, uh, not every theologian writes a, a set of systematic theology. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is Jürgen Moltmann. He actually never wrote a systematic theology, but what he did is he just wrote a bunch of volumes on the important sections of a traditional systematic theology. And so he wrote this book titled The Way of Jesus Christ. And so that's his Christology. And it's just a separate volume uh, looking at who Jesus is and what is the meaning of saying that Jesus is the Christ. And he does this using all of the Christian tradition that we have available, but more importantly, from my viewpoint, using all of the tradition that we have available from Judaism, which is where the early Jesus move, movement uh, branched out of in the beginning. So I think it's important. So we're going to talk about that. How can we uh, develop a Christology on the foundation of divine pathos? Well, let me say a couple more things about Christology, uh, just like a, to outline the topic. So first of all, the, we have this difference between, I'm going to give you what you would find on Wikipedia if you looked it up. So. <laughs> on Christology, well, if I were to write the page, that is so. <laughs> Christology kind of comes in two categories. One category is Christology from above. The other one is Christology from below. Roughly speaking, Christology from above is beginning with the concept of Jesus as divine, probably taken from a, from a creed or, or a, a statement of faith or something, and then working downwards to try to explain his his sort of human story that we see in the gospels. The Christology from below is the opposite. It's sort of, you begin with the human Jesus as we see depicted in, in especially the first three gospels, the synoptic gospels. And then you try to get to, what does it mean to say he's divine? Um, now, what is the orthodoxy about Christology? Well, for at least 1600 years now, the big, Christology in a nutshell sounds something like this. Um, 
an Orthodox Christology will say that Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and that we can't divide that person into two persons, like a divine person and a human person. But we also can't confuse the natures, so we can't collapse the nature, the divine nature and the human nature together into one either. Okay, well, that's not a solution to anything. That's just like a statement of the problem of Christology, is how can you do that? Um, and how can you do that? Yeah. So I think what I want to suggest here is that with the Christology of divine pathos, in a way, it, I want to reject that orthodox question. Like, how do we get two natures in one person without splitting the person or confusing the natures? Like, I'm really not interested in that question at the, at the moment. What I'm interested in is how does the revelation of God in Christ um, work if God is as described by Abraham Heschel's theology of divine pathos? How does Jesus, what function does he serve given, um, given this theology of divine pathos? And whatever the answer to that question is, I'm going to call it a Christology of, uh, of divine pathos. And it may or may not answer um, the two natures, one person issue and if it gets and if it doesn't if it falls afoul of that i'm actually might be okay with it if it's a good enough answer <laughs> okay great so that's the question that we're going to try to answer today what is the revelation of god in christ okay keep that in mind listeners keep that in mind all right let's talk about uh the relation of what we call the old testament the new testament so what is the christian posture towards the Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures. Um, to what extent are we going to make use of the scriptures, especially the Hebrew scriptures, in trying to formulate an answer for this? What do you think about that? Okay, so this is a really important question. Um, and one of the reasons why it's important is because of 20th century history and anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. It's really important that Christianity, which, I mean, I I'm not keeping score. I maybe I've forgotten, but I think that we are the number one religion in the world. <laughs> we have the most people at the moment. Is this true? I think still is barely. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, so if we're the, if we're the big religion and we share the, the old Testament or Hebrew scriptures with a, which what I, I think statistically is a much smaller religion or, or people group. Um, we got to be careful about what we say. What we say can actually do a lot of damage. It can inflame, um, it can inflame hostility and hate. And you know what? That is exactly what has happened in the, in the 20th century. And so this is a very big and dangerous question. Um, on the other hand, this is a question that is old. It's been around for a long time. So if you mm -hmm. read in the New Testament, you'll find that one of the big issues in the New Testament that's sort of driving Paul to write his letters and that is, that is sort of explaining why we have this literature at all is because it comes out of, a, out of a conflict over certain over certain ideas. And one of the problems is that the early Jesus movement is a Jewish movement. It's Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. His mission was to Israel. He literally was not interested in the neighboring regions. <laughs> he just sort of happened to do some good while he was hiding out there. 
Um, so the early, the earliest church is the Jewish church. The earliest Christianity is Judaism, with a with a, with a sort of gathered around a particular teacher called Jesus. Okay. The New Testament starts to wonder what does it mean to include other people in this religion. What kind of how Jewish do you have to be to become a Christian? And Paul, mm -hmm. an important New Testament author, is adamant that um, you do not have to be Jewish at all to be a, to become a follower of Jesus. That Christianity takes on a trans-ethnic uh, characteristic where your ethnicity or is not necessary for you to join. And this actually, I've been reading Larry Hurtado's book, Destroyer of the Gods, and I think you just read it too. Mm -hmm. This is a real central feature of early Christianity that it did not actually require you to be a certain ethnicity to join. It was an invitation. It was a universal invitation to join. Anybody from any people group can join. Okay, well, within a short amount of time, there are many, many more people who are not Jewish in the Christian faith and, and the Jewish original core is now the minority. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so what happens next? Well, there, be, there's a new, there's a new debate and this is the, the debate. This is the question that you asked me, which is what is the value of the Hebrew scriptures or the old Testament for Christian faith? Um, if I'm not a Jewish person and I enter the Christian faith in the year 400, why should I care about the old Testament? Cause that's the story of Israel. I'm not an Israelite. Why should I care about that as a Christian? Uh, and so there's a fork in the road and authors such as um, Marcion and the Valentine, I forget his full name, it's sort of Valentine or Valentinian movement. <laughs> um, and, and also associated with, with Gnostic Christianity, which was an equally legitimate option at the time. There's no orthodoxy yet. Uh, they were they they started to say that you know what the father of jesus is much different than the god described in the old testament and they proposed that we more or less abandon the old testament um, because it describes a lesser god and so it literally is a two gods approach to christianity where you say the new testament has one god and the old testament has another um, and the, uh, the other option is to say, no, they're the same. The father of Jesus in the Old Testament is the same as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the Old Testament. And that is the orthodox view. That's the view that won out. Um, so if you, I mean, I can, I can quiz you, but maybe I shouldn't. Uh, if you think of any Christian creed, what's the first line? The first line is, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Why is that the first line? Because the first question Christianity had to answer in this sort of coming of age was, is the creator the same as the father of Jesus? Basically, which is the same question as, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? And, um, and the Christianity that is still with us today says yes. Uh, and when we've tried to go backwards on that, let's say in um, 1930s Germany, it hasn't gone well. <laughs> it hasn't gone well to it's, it's led to some major atrocities to reverse that, that position at a practical level. So that's, sorry, that was a bit of a long 
history lesson, but I, I think it's really important. Um, I think it's a really important one to appreciate. Yeah. yeah. So Emil Bruner says somewhere, maybe his systematic theology, I don't know. One of his- It's in an essay of his, yeah. He says, we need to read the New Testament in light of the old, or else we will succumb to a Greek theology. Okay, so this is uh, this has been a popular thesis for a while, and a lot of people are fighting against it, right? A lot of people are fighting against it. Like, for example, David Bentley Hart would say that. No. Yeah, but those lots of people are people who love Greek theology. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Molman himself would agree <laughs> to this, but a lot of people criticize Molman also saying that he's naive and he doesn't know what he's talking about. So people fancy themselves superior theologians and they criticize him. But I, I still think it's largely correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's not so simple and it's not so black and white. Like in the time of Jesus, did, did people really have a 100% biblical theology or faith? Were they 100% unaffected by the philosophical milieu of the day? Probably not, but I still think it holds, right? So if- Well, they were invaded by Alexander the Great, literally. So that's pretty Greek. <laughs> pretty Greek culture that they lived in. So. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we still definitely have this issue of, like you said, there's a fork on the road. If we adopt this matrix of like the philosophical God construct, right? Which is a super being higher, than anything else, untouched by the material world, impassable. I mean, it's really hard to square that or to bring it into alignment with what we see in the Old Testament. And so we, I think we definitely do have to make a choice. And it, it's strange that people try to have it both ways, but I just don't think it really works. I think we have to go for one or the other. But people do. I mean, you know this. People do try to do both. And it's just very strange to me. Absolutely. So, like, I was kind of pushing against the orthodox Christological formula. The sort of Jesus is both human and divine. Well, the word divine doesn't actually mean anything. It means whatever you want it to mean. So, divine could mean omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, impassable, etc. Or it could mean a perfect love for the world and a vulnerability um, that manifests itself through, through this pathos. So, so Abraham Heschel's concept of divine, I think is much more valuable to us than a Greek concept of divine or than a philosophical concept of divine. What is divinity? That's the question of what is God actually like? And as in the time of the New Testament, or as in the time of the Gospels, everybody thinks that they are working for God. Mm -hmm. The religious leaders think that they have God on their side. I, was, I assume the Romans think they have God on their side. I mean, given how successful they are at sort of ruling the world and so on. 
Um, and the under the underdogs in Israel, they think they have God on their side too, but it's a little bit harder to believe it because it's not going so well. But but they have they cling to God from the perspective of the of the victims. Mm -hmm. So who has God right? Who? And so the way the way that Paul describes it in Galatians, he says that Jesus is crucified, and he says that the law says that anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And his mm -hmm. logic is that, guess what? Jesus was not cursed by God. Therefore, whoever says that whoever's hung on a tree is cursed by God is wrong about God. And this is sort of, this is how the, this is one of the ways that the death of Christ works for Paul. And I think it's going to be a key part of this uh, Christology of divine pathos is that mm -hmm. God puts Jesus Christ crucified in our face. And we have an option to say, well, clearly he's been cursed by God. Or maybe God is with this miserable person after all. Um, that's another, that, that's the fork in the road that the cross uh, presents to us. And so, yeah. And so I think that how we interpret the cross is super important because um, a lot of a lot of the interpretation that happens when you're faced with the cross of Christ and this, today is Good Friday, so this is a good time to talk about this as any. Um, a lot of the interpretation that happens is just about trying to defend your current notion of God with the idea that God's chosen one is crucified. Like, how is that even possible? Um, and there's some very bizarre answers to that question that are not helpful. And I, and and really the the work of the Christian faith or of Christian theology, is to get to the good answers to that question, and um, and then to shape your life according to them. Great. Okay. Excellent. So, so where do we go from here? So we understand now this uh, theology of divine pathos. If we use that as our foundation and we seek to use it to interpret what happens to Jesus, what, what do we have? What do we conclude? What, what will a proclamation look like or sound like rather if we proclaim Christ, Christ crucified through this matrix of a theology of divine pathos? What would change in our preaching or in our proclamation? Okay, so I think that, I think one of the things that needs to happen is we need to go back to a Christology from below rather than a Christology from above. I think, and this is my sort of personal conviction, that we can achieve almost everything that theology needs to do using a Christology from below. And I know that this may be alarming to the Orthodox or fundamentalists out there, but, but like, just give it a try. It, it actually works. Um, it actually works. And so I find that Christology from above, you come, you look at the person of Jesus in the gospels and you say, wow, so that guy must be divine after all. What do you know? Um, and then you think to yourself, well, what does divine mean? And you think, well, I don't know. 
2000 years later, obviously it means he's omnipotent and omniscient and so on and somehow impassable. Um, okay, well, uh, I guess these miracles are really interesting because that's what he's doing, right? He's showing his power. <laughs> it's sort of leaking through. And then Jesus really just becomes a superhero. He becomes like Superman or Batman. I guess Batman doesn't have any powers. Some other kind of mutant superhero with some powers. And that totally misses the whole point of Jesus. And it's totally um, out of, it's just, it's totally missing the revelation of God in Christ. The revelation of God in Christ is not that Jesus has powers and so is a miracle worker. In fact, if I'm going to grant that Jesus has done miracles, I will interpret them as work that he's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't need him to have any power for those miracles to happen. Um, none at all. Just flip back to the Old Testament, the book of Kings, first and second Kings, you've got Elisha and Elijah, and they do pretty much all the same stuff that Jesus does. We are not Elishans or Elijans, mm. we're Christians. Why, why not? What's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus and Elisha and Elijah? They, maybe answering that question would, be, would get us um, closer to what the actual revelation of God in Christ is. Okay. Great. Yes. So <clears throat> attempting to do Christology from below. So you're not advocating that we tear out the gospel of John out of the Bible, correct? <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think so. Like the gospel of John is very much Christology from below as well. Um, but I think that it, I think it sort of captures the, the point here. So in the gospel of John, in the gospel of John, we famously have Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Or so one of his disciples says, could you just show us the father? That's what we're all really here for. And he says, don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so the Orthodox and fundamentalists among us go checkmate. Look, Jesus is God. <laughs> it's so like, what could that possibly mean? I think that Christology from below can answer that question. So, I mean, do you want me to venture my answer or do you have a, a thought? Oh there? yeah, go ahead. Okay. Okay, so what did it mean in Abraham Heschel's theology of divine pathos for a prophet to be a prophet? It meant that they shared in the divine pathos, that they had sympathy with the divine pathos, that they could see what everybody else was blind to because nobody else was willing to see it. Mm -hmm. God was not actually pleased with religion as usual mm -hmm. um, when there was major injustice going on as well that god that although people may be pleased with their sacrifices and and, and special events um, what god looks at when he sees the city of jerusalem was injustice was the poor and the and the vulnerable so 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 this is what's happening with jesus is that if you've seen me you've seen the father jesus is at least for christians a prophet, um, at least a prophet. And I think that you can get to Jesus as a prophet just via a Christology from below. Okay, but more than a prophet. So what we're saying as Christians is that Jesus essentially maximizes the prophetic concept and takes it to its limit. 
the idea that if you've seen me, you've seen the father is to say that if you see what I care about and my concern and my love for the world and for what's happening in the world and for the sake of God's holy name, that's all that you need to see about the father as well. Uh, if, if you could look at Jesus and receive who he is, what his character is like, that's just as good as receiving the father. And Jesus himself uses a parable in, I think it's in all three synoptic gospels, maybe even in John, but probably not. I'd have to get out my um, comparison uh, textbook here to double check <laughs> about the parable of the vineyard and the servant, right? Israel is a vineyard and God is the, is the owner and the owner wants some fruit from the vineyard and the fruit of the vineyard is, is how is the just treatment of their neighbor and the alien and the vulnerable. And so he sends servants, sends servants to collect some of the fruit, basically, which corresponds to sending prophets who care about the same thing as the owner and ask that the people respect what God actually cares about. And then they kill those servants slash prophets. And then God says, okay, I'm going to send a son. Surely they'll respect the son. This is the role that Jesus plays. He is yet another agent of the God of Israel to the people of Israel, except that this time, this time there is no way to reject the agent and embrace the one who sent the agent. What, what Christian, what a theology, sorry, what a Christology of divine pathos says is that Jesus is the perfect agent of his father. And so we cannot separate the two. You can't reject Jesus um, reject what Jesus cares about without also rejecting what the father cares about. Prophecy has sort of reached perfect, um, perfect transparency or perfect, uh, completely reliable in the sense that we are actually seeing the character of God. When we look at the character of Jesus, we're actually seeing the divine pathos when we look at the pathos of Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. This reminds me of one of your favorite theologians, John Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> no, so he has, I think he was one of the first, if not the first, definitely the one that just popularized the idea of identifying Jesus' life and ministry in a threefold way, right? So Jesus is prophet, he is priest, and he is king, right? And so the prophetic uh, aspect was basically the three, three and a half years, or however long he was here on earth, you know, doing prophetic work. The priestly has to do with what happens with Jesus during the passion. He dies a death in which he atones for the sins of the world. And the kingly aspect means that when God raises Jesus from the dead, he basically enthrones Jesus to the right hand, right? To the right hand of the Father, and he rules. Even right now, he's ruling, and he will continue to rule into the future. So Jesus has like this threefold office. This just brought that to mind. I don't know what we're doing with this, but that's what I thought about. <laughs> well, what I want to say is that the prophetic role just swallows those other two alive. That's what I want to claim. Because <laughs> we're trying to go, theology is not interesting if you keep it nice and balanced, right? You've got to go all in if you want to make a name for yourself, this business. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so 
if we want to have a Christology of divine pathos, what we're saying is that the prophetic role achieves mm -hmm. the other two roles as well. So I actually haven't thought this through, but I'm just trying to think it through now. The priestly role is to say that Jesus atones, right? Yeah. It's simple, as simple as that. So, mm -hmm. so this all depends on what your theory of atonement is. Right. Uh, um, yeah. And so we've done a lot of work on Peter Forsyth. We've read, read a bunch of his stuff and talked about it together. Um, for him, revelation and salvation are the same thing. Remember? Mm-hmm. Yep. Or so that means that you can't really receive revelation fully without it actually without it saving you or or being saved is 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 revelation as well so mm -hmm. what is what has happened like the priestly role sorry the prophetic role of jesus isn't just his his life it's his death as well um it's his death as well what does it mean for god to make god's divine pathos present among us through a person who faithfully transmits that pathos in a way that no prophet has ever achieved before. It means that because deep down, we all really hate God, that we'll just kill that person. That's what it means. And that's what happened is that despite all of our best intentions and self-deception, when we come face to face with the character of God, it's like that. It's like Isaiah's vision. And I think Isaiah six, we feel like we're going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so we have to destroy the messenger. And so it's, it's no surprise that Jesus dies. If you manifest the character of God in the world, as it's organized with the powers that be, they will destroy that messenger. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the earliest theory of the atonement, I think, is ransom or, or Christ defeating the powers. Do you want to try to explain that briefly? And I think that, I think that, I think what we're what I think what I'm trying to say is that this Christology of the divine pathos basically sets us up for for Christus Victor theology, because, for Christus Victor atonement, because the presentation of God's character in the world provokes the powers to basically own goal or defeat themselves <laughs> by destroying the only source of power they might have had, which is this divine, which was alignment with, with God as God actually is. So. Okay, great. Well, I was just thinking this, I was thinking of Paul, right? Before, you know, he had a vision of Christ. So when he was Saul of Tarsus, if you will, according to the Bible, I guess. So yeah. when he was Saul of Tarsus and he was really zealous as a Pharisee and whatnot, if we ask Saul of Tarsus, who is God? He would probably say, well, God is the creator of heaven and earth. God is the God of Israel. He brought us out of Egypt and through Moses, he brought us into the promised land and Joshua, I guess. And he gave us the law. That's who God is. That is who God is. But then fast forward maybe 10, 15 years later and ask Paul when he's maybe in Corinth. So Paul, let's say a Gentile asked this same person 15 years later, who is God? He would still say, well, God is the creator of heaven and earth. And there's only one God. All these gods, they're not gods. All these lords, they're not lords. There's only one God. And he is the God of Israel. He would still say that. But 
at that point, he would no longer say he, I mean, he would say that he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, of course, and even that he gave us the law. But to him, God is no longer the supreme lawgiver, but God is now the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, the Christ event, I don't want to say change, maybe added or deepened the divine identity. So God is so identified with Jesus Christ that Paul no longer refers to him as he would have earlier as, you know, the God of Moses, I guess, who gave us the law, but he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's tremendous, tremendous jump. And of course, Paul was not Trinitarian. He was still a Jew with a difference of opinion, of course. But I think it's just tremendous how he experienced this change and he had to theologize his way to make sense of what changing his life and what change as he saw this movement grow and as he became a prominent part of that movement in bringing the inclusion of Gentiles as Gentiles into this movement for Jesus and of Jesus. Okay, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I just thought I should say that. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, um, so I was, maybe I'll double back to what I was trying to say. Um, I'm, what I'm trying to say with the Christology of divine pathos is that Jesus as prophet basically achieves Jesus as priest and king, now that you provoked me to try to say that. <laughs> and so I've already said that Jesus as prophet achieves Jesus as priest because atonement is this defeat of the powers and the defeat of the powers is through the prophetic manifestation of the divine pathos through the cross of Christ. And I think we should double back to that in a little bit um, about see what Moltmann has to say about that. Um, but Christ is King. Um, this is through the resurrection and, and it's, uh, Soren Kierkegaard really helped me with this in his book, Practice in Christianity. You may want to worship the exalted Christ because of mm -hmm. course you would worship. If, if you hear that God has raised up Jesus Christ over all people and over all the world and all the powers, and you think to yourself, okay, well, if I want to follow God, I guess I got to follow Jesus or worship Jesus. That's what God's asking for. If that's obvious to you, like 2000 years later, as it is to, as it is kind of like a default cultural assumption. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, guess what? Who has God actually raised up? It's not just any old Jesus. It's the Jesus of the divine pathos, the one that has been crucified precisely because of the divine pathos. Um, now, Kierkegaard talks about how the exalted Christ is Christ in his abasement. Mm. How the Christ that God has actually raised up is the Christ that is stripped of anything that we would find attractive other than the character of God, right? And so Christology from above, it basically makes Jesus very attractive by saying he's got a divine nature. So he's mm -hmm. all powerful and he's all knowing and so on. Mm -hmm. The Christology from below focuses on Christ and his abasement, that he's hungry, confused, changes his opinion, 
possibly racist at first towards the the Syrophoenician woman. We have this debate on Twitter every year, <laughs> but then comes around when he sees God at work through her as well. Um, all of the things that attract us to Jesus are often just straight up the wrong things. What we need to be attracted to is this manifestation of the divine pathos in somebody who is a faithful agent of his father, more faithful and faithful in a maximal and final way. Um, okay, so if that's who Christ has raised up, then that's what it means to be the king or to have this kingly office. And I don't think Calvin... Lord help me for going up against Calvin, but I'm I'm just never going to get into him. Like, I don't think Calvin is talking about that. He's super swept up on sovereignty, and he's all about this sort of sovereign reign of God. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what I'm. That's not what we're talking about. God has exalted Christ in His abasement. God has exalted God's own divine pathos mm -hmm. as manifest to us through the person of Jesus, the human, somebody who the world snuffed out because of what they saw and what they feared and what they saw. This is what's being raised up. <laughs> and so at a practical level, what does it mean for Christ to be the king? You mentioned Paul, so I'll, meant, I'll go back to him. This is the new mythology of the divine pathos, right? Is that for Paul and in the New Testament, mm -hmm. the spirit of God is now the spirit of Jesus. That's what it means for Christ to be king. That when God acts in the world through God's spirit, that is the spirit of Jesus. There's no other um, way to access the spirit of God other than something that comports with the character of Jesus. And so Paul talks about Romans 5.5 5 is probably the most important verse in the New Testament. And it says, hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Uh, you could just, you could almost just replace that for, with divine pathos. Christ is king because the divine pathos is available in the name of Jesus to everyone everywhere all the time now through the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, okay, in, in conclusion of my TED Talk, I think I've successfully <laughs> made the prophetic more important than the other two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, this is great. This made me think of the, the, the famous kenosis passage in Philippians 2, right? Right. Yeah, and I like how you brought Kierkegaard into the equation. So, so Jesus, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. <sighs> yep. I love it. Yeah, just the, the weakness of God, right? The weakness of God as, as demonstrated by Jesus. And that's what we see uh, Paul praising God for. It, it's a confounding gospel for sure. It's a confounding gospel that we're preaching the, the weakness of God, the foolishness of God. But also this is actually the wisdom of God. Yeah, this divine pathos, that's the wisdom of God, and it's made manifest in this weakness, which is very surprising. So I was thinking maybe we could finish up with um, with a little bit about Moltmann's perspective on the cross that you've been preparing. Okay, so... Where to start in there, because there's lots to say about that too. But. Yeah, well, Moltmann is known for many things, but I would say the main thing he's known for is that 
he's someone who really takes the odyssey seriously in all his work and he sees the suffering of christ as key and integral to who god is so i'll read a couple a couple of quotes just in closing so that we get an idea i think molman if he were here, he would he would agree to everything that we said and so he says paul interprets the event of god forsakenness on the cross as the surrender of the son and the surrender of the son as the love of god so in other words molman understands that we have to interpret we have to interpret he interprets just like everybody else does like john calvin has his way of interpreting molman has his own method one that is informed by a theology of divine pathos so let me just read this right here as an encapsulation of his of his message just one quote he says in the suffering of the son jesus the pain of the father finds a voice the self-emptying of the son also expresses the self-emptying of the father christ is crucified in the weakness of god in the forsakenness of the son the father also forsakes himself in the surrender of the son the father also surrenders himself but not in the same way for jesus suffers dying in forsakenness but he does not suffer death itself for it is impossible to suffer death since suffering presupposes life but the father who abandons him and delivers him up suffers the death of the son in the infinite grief of love so yeah Molman says that the father is suffering he affirms that the god the god the father suffers but of course he's suffering in a different way when jesus died god the father suffered mourned and grieved the death of the son jesus of course died and he was dead when people are dead they don't do anything they don't feel anything they don't do anything but god was if you will grieving the death of his son and well, let me just add one more thing here. Boltman says, it is pure lack of comprehension to maintain that one of the Trinity suffered, but the other caused the suffering. <laughs> and basically, I mean, that's, that's orthodoxy as popularly conceived anyways. So they want to say that, okay, well, Jesus suffered, yes, but only, only his human nature suffered not his divine nature. So it's a little bit of a caricature, but uh, one out of the three suffer, but out of that one half, out of that one only half. So it's, again, it's a caricature, but the idea here is that Molman sees and understands God as fully experiencing the death of Jesus, as suffering with us the death of jesus and god of course overturns that death he raises jesus from the dead and that is of course what we celebrate in easter which is coming up but as of today we will want to underscore that 
God suffers. God suffers. We're not saying that God's going to be overcome by suffering, but we are going to say that God does indeed suffer. And that is, for us Christians, something that is integral to the gospel and to, to our Christology and to our theology. One thing I appreciated at Maltman is he shifts the focus from the gospel for the sinner to the gospel for the victim. Um, mm -hmm. When you talk about the gospel for the sinner, it's all about what does the cross do for, for everybody in light of all their shortcomings, right? Mm -hmm. And Moltmann, I think that what I've really gotten out of him is he asked, he asked the question, what does the cross do for all the people who were, who were being crushed underfoot? Mm -hmm. What does it do for them? And I was just thinking as you were reading in him, I'm thinking back to the parable of the, of the vineyard and the tenants. If you sort of sort of mix, if I just throw away the metaphor now, we can kind of get to what Moltmann is talking about. So Jesus is saying that the God of Israel has been sending prophets, people who share in the divine concern for the world to mm -hmm. Israel, looking for the just treatment of, of the vulnerable people in Israel, for instance, mm -hmm. and those messengers are rejected. Mm -hmm. And then God sends a son and that son is treated the same way that all the people who are crushed underfoot are treated. This is what it means to for the this is what it means for the tenants to kill the the son. It means they're doing the same thing to the son that they're doing to the people that counts as no fruit. <laughs> um, and so it's like it's like God sees the world, God sees the way that people are treating one another in the world. This wounds God already, and God decides to receive through a perfect agent the same treatment that the that the most miserable amongst us are receiving from each other there's something there's something there's something like terrifying about that if you think about it yeah and and the big idea of Christ defeating the powers is that all of the powers that are doing all of this harm have now done that harm to the ultimate power, to God, to God himself, or God, God self. Yeah. Which means that, that they have abdicated their authority. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Ben. Excellent discussion today. And thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.